The following study is a Sunday morning meeting at Athey Creek Christian Fellowship with Pastor Brett Metter. Now, the Bible is divided uh, into uh, different kind of sections. Of course, most people know there's an Old Testament and a New Testament, which is great to know that. Um, but there's actually even more divisions than, than even that that you should know about. Of course, we uh, have been going verse by verse through the Bible. So when we started in Genesis, we went through those, those first five books called the Pentateuch or the Torah, the law, um, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Um, and so uh, th- those were the ones authored by Moses himself. And then after that, you go into more of the, in the Bible here, the books of history, which, um, you know, starts telling the story a little more um, of, of the Jews, you know, from Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, you know, and all the way even through Ezra, Nehemiah to the book of Esther. Those are the books of history. And we looked at all of those. And some of those will come into play in the book of Isaiah because Isaiah was in, uh, you know, service to the Lord during some of the reigns of those kings. We'll talk about that in a bit. But the books of history. Then that third section of the Old Testament is the books of poetry. And it starts with the book of Job and goes through Psalms and Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes, and then the Song of Solomon, of course, that we just finished. So that brings us to the new section of the Bible, and it's the prophets. Now, you could just say it's the prophets, and then that's the end of the Old Testament, but but you might break that down into the major prophets and the minor prophets. And uh, the major prophets versus the minor prophets, one thing that people misunderstand is it's not like the baseball, major league and minor league. It's not like the prophets are, you know, uh, better than or worse than. You got your varsity, which is Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah, and then the JV, you know, with Obadiah and Amos and those guys. No. Um, they're, they're all prophets of the Lord. And some of those minor prophets carry a powerful punch. Uh, they're like little hand grenades ready to go off. Boom! And uh, don't, don't mistake, those minor prophets are not minor in the sense that they're not important. Uh, but they are minor in the sense they're shorter in length than the long prophets that we call major prophets. Now, because we're entering into the section called the prophets, there's a question I want to rhetorically ask you, and that is, do do prophets exist today? That's the question I want to have you think about for a second. Um, Are there prophets today? Um, The answer is yes and no. Well, Brett, that sounds wishy-washy. Oh, it's not, but let me explain. See, the thing is, the idea of a prophet of the Old Testament, um, uh, to have prophets that move and operate in the same way as the Old Testament prophets, the answer is no. We do not have prophets like the Old Testament. And Jesus is the one who taught us that. Um, Does anybody remember, who can tell me, uh, who was the last of the prophets of the Old Testament? J the B, John the Baptist, that's right. And we, we learned that. Remember when they were asking Jesus about John the Baptist? And, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to me because, um, you know, poor John the Baptist, uh, he was, um, was wondering, you know, about, boy, is this, is this the one or should we look for another, you know, and all that stuff. But listen to what Jesus said about John the Baptist here in Matthew eleven eleven. It says, verily I say unto you, Jesus said, among them that are born among women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. That's, that's pretty amazing for Jesus to say, no one has ever been born among women. That's humanity. Then John the Baptist. And then later he goes on and says, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. 
And if you'll receive it, this is Elijah, which was for to come. He that hath ear to hear, let him hear. Uh, Boy, that's a long discussion. Was John the Baptist Elijah? John the Baptist said no, but Jesus said yes, kind of. Uh, What do you mean? Well, it seems as we study the, the life of John the Baptist, the spirit of Elijah was upon John the Baptist. That's what Jesus said. And that really concluded the Old Testament prophets as they were in the Old Testament. So what do you do with the guy that walks around today saying, I am a prophet of the Lord? What do you do with that guy? Well, I'd say beware. And, and sometimes it's just a matter of syntax or maybe a wrong use of language or understanding of what the Bible teaches. So let me ask you this question. Does uh, the word of prophecy exist today? And does the Lord work through a person to do, oh, give a word of prophecy? Yes, good, thank you. I was a little, a little tumbleweeds here blowing through the sanctuary. I was a little worried. Um, yes. See, this is important to understand. The, the Holy Spirit moves through his church. And there's a list of things. I love 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It says, the, the, now concerning spiritual. Now, some people say spiritual gifts. The word gifts there is in italics in 1 Corinthians 12, which means it's not in the original text. But concerning things of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, he then lists a bunch of manifestations of the Holy Spirit that the church gets to enjoy uh, in the New Testament church. Now, there are some people who say the Holy Spirit doesn't do those things anymore. I don't think you can really take an honest look at the New Testament and believe that. Uh, They're called cessationists, that the miracles and speaking in tongues and prophecy and those healings and stuff, that was for just the early, early, early church, but not for the rest of the church. I just can't get on board with that. There's a whole reason why many years later, Paul came and explained to the church how to let the Holy Spirit's manifestations be exercised in the church. Um, Among those spiritual movements of the Holy Spirit is the word of prophecy. Um, So when a person speaks a word of prophecy, does that make him or her a prophet or a prophetess? The answer is no. Um, Here's what the, the difference is. In the Old Testament prophets, those were guys that spoke words of encouragement. They spoke on behalf of God to man, and God used them to speak words of power and blessing and curses Um, And also, those Old Testament prophets could foretell the future. Uh, Much of the prophets, even Isaiah, we're going to find he speaks a lot about what's going to happen, how things are going to come down in the future, um, foretelling the future. That's the Old Testament prophet. The New Testament prophet doesn't do the foretelling as much as they do what I would call forthtelling. What's that? What's the difference? Well, if you read what a prophet... Uh, word that, uh, the word of prophecy given through a person in the New Testament, it's very clear. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 14. It says this, that the person who speaks a word of prophecy by the Spirit in the church, in the, in, in the church age that we're in now, will speak one of three things, an edification word, exhortation word, or word of comfort. That's what it says. And then it talks about how to speak in tongues in the church and that's to be decent and in order. And uh, some churches don't get that part either, that people shouldn't just jump up and speak in tongues without uh, order in the church. And there's, there's very clear writing that Paul gives to us about all of these manifestations of the Holy Spirit. The word of prophecy is one of my favorites. I love that, that manifestation of the Spirit. And some of you have done it without even knowing it. What do you mean, Brett? You're saying I'm a prophet? Nope. I'm saying the Lord may have given you a word of prophecy 
to give to someone, whether you know it or not. Let me give you an example. Have you ever been in a situation where you were talking with someone and maybe it was an intense conversation or maybe it was something you didn't, you were way out of your wheelhouse, not knowing what to say. And then suddenly you just kind of have something stir in your heart and you say something and you're like, wow, I didn't know I had it in me. You're like, man, I just said something that was kind of profound. Did I say that? Wow. Have you ever noticed that? Sometimes you say something and you're just like, wow, that really didn't come from my brain. And you sort of give a very specific word into a person's life. That is a word of prophecy where the Holy Spirit comes upon you and, and gives you a word of edification, exhortation, or comfort. Um, it's something that's, I think, a beautiful uh, blessing as the Holy Spirit moves through his church. Um, I've, I get to be a part of that from time to time when I'm teaching right up here. There's things where I'll be teaching through a Bible section. And as I'm going, you know, some of those tangents I go on and you guys are like, oh, Brett's on another tangent. Um, some of you are like, no, I'd have never noticed that. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, but those tangents, those are the ones that more often than not, I'll be going off on some tangent. And I feel like the Lord's leading me to talk about this. And I won't talk about it at the other services, but maybe at that specific service, I'll go off on a tangent and talk about that inevitably. Someone will come up to me after the service and say, okay, who told you? Who called you before the service and told me that I was going through this thing and you spoke exactly about what I was going through? And um, There's a true story, by the way. I didn't tell the other services this one, so uh, this, this may be a word of pride. I was at the, remember when we were at the school, the middle school? I was at the, there and I taught a sermon and this guy came up panicking, said, Brett, you have to come and help me. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, you know, when you preached your sermon this morning, my wife is furious with me and you. And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, um, he said, she thought that I called you before the service to have you preach on the thing that you preached. And she, she's convinced, well, where is she? She's sitting out in the car, locked in the car, and she won't come out. Come out. So I literally had to go out in the parking lot, and she rolled down her window like a half inch. And I, I said, um, I said, man, your husband didn't call me. Um, I said, could it be that the Holy Spirit was speaking to you this morning? <laughs> um, it took a while, uh, but, but she, actually, uh, she actually realized that it really was uh, a word that she needed to hear, that it was like very much about the topic that he and she were arguing about. I had no idea. Um, moving in that role of, a, of, a, of the, the prof prophetic utterance through his church, man, that's important to know that. Um, now, I'm glad we're not prophets. I'll tell you why. Prophets in the Old Testament time, tough gig. Man, if you were a prophet of the Old Testament and you said something that didn't come to pass, what would they do with you? Stone you to death. Can you imagine that? You get it a little wrong um, and, and suddenly they're taking you out and stoning you to death. I mean, think of all the prognosticators we have, people that are supposed to kind of help us to know what's going to happen in the future. Uh, think about, would there be any weathermen left? <laughs> or what about the pollsters, you know, of the elections? Uh, they've proven themselves to not know anything. The pollsters. Um, you know, the Psychic Friends Network. You guys remember that back in the day when they were always on the TV commercials? Why are they no longer in business? Because they didn't know what they were doing. Uh, and, and they couldn't do it. Even the best we've had to put forward. Do you remember George Orwell's book, 1984? I graduated from high school in 1984, so it was a big deal. And our teachers made us read, you know, 1984. And Orwell goes down as one of the real 
uh, accurate prognosticators of the future. So 100 years earlier, he wrote 1984, and he said, here's what it's going to look like, basically, in 1984. And he wrote it in 1884. And as it turns out, he did a pretty good job. He got 35% of it right, as it turns out. 35%. In prophecy terms, he should be taken out and stoned to death because he only got 35%. When we speak of the prophets of the Old Testament, they had to be 100% accurate. And that's one of the unique things about the Bible, about the prophets, prophets of the Old Testament. Isaiah was in that situation. He spoke words of the future, and he had to get it right 100% of the time, or else they would have taken him out and stoned him to death. Now, sad to say, a lot of people stoned or beat up the prophets because they didn't like them because they were always speaking the word of God, and some people don't like that either. What I want to do is introduce you today to the book of Isaiah, to the prophet Isaiah. Just, a, just an introduction. We'll hit it verse by verse on Wednesday night. But if you'd allow me just to kind of um, meander a little bit through what this book is about and, and what Isaiah is about, uh, I think that'd be good for us to start our whole study with that. So I've got four things that I want to talk about. Number one, Isaiah the person. Number two, Isaiah, the passages of the Bible. Number three, Isaiah, the profound. And then fourthly, Isaiah, the problem. So first of all, Isaiah, the person. Uh, Who was Isaiah? Well, let's just read verse one, chapter one, and that gets us started. Isaiah chapter one, verse one. There it says, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Here we read that uh, Isaiah was the son of Amos. Uh, We'll talk a little more about that and who he was and his relations and what have you uh, Wednesday night. But but we know what time period he uh, he served as a prophet during the reign of these kings. Now, by the way, one king's left out. The last king that he served under. Um, And I'll tell you about that in a second. But remember when we were studying in the books of the Kings and Chronicles, how there were good kings and bad kings. And most of the kings were evil. Do you remember that as we were studying, those of you that were with us in those books? Um, Well, it was during Isaiah's time of ministry that there were mostly good kings. And you could make the argument it was due to Isaiah's good influence on those kings. Isaiah had a real relationship with each of these kings. Um, and, uh, and in this list here, Uzziah, he was a good king. Um, Jotham, good king. Ahaz, bad king. And Hezekiah, good king. And uh, those good kings would listen to the prophet Isaiah. And maybe that's part of the reason their reign as kings were so profitable and good. But um, of, of those, of those uh, kings, the last one that's not listed here is a king named Manasseh. What is Manasseh, the king of Israel? What was he most famous for, anybody? He was the most wicked, evil king uh, in Israel's history. It's a little bit of a troubling story because Manasseh was so wicked and evil, but do you remember what happened? In the last like 10 seconds of his life, he repented and turned to the Lord. I think we're gonna see him in heaven. Uh, That's amazing. The most wicked king in Israel's history is gonna probably be in heaven. Gives me hope gives you hope too. Uh, God's grace, it's amazing. That saved a wretch like him, Manasseh, means that he can save a wretch like you and me. But, but Manasseh was evil and, 
And Isaiah the prophet was martyred or killed during Manasseh's reign. Justin Martyr, who's an ancient guy who wrote History of Israel, he wrote about how Manasseh killed Isaiah. Um, It's kind of a gruesome story, but I'll just give you the Reader's Digest version. Um, He took Isaiah out and sawed him in half. But he did it with a, a, a unique saw that he made out of wood. It was a wooden saw that sawed Isaiah in half. If you can only picture that, it would have been a horrible, brutal death. But that was the point. That's what Manasseh wanted to do to kill Isaiah the prophet. So most of these Old Testament prophets were hated because they spoke God's word. Um, Don't be shocked when you tell people, even in our culture, about the word of God, if people will hate you for that. Uh, Don't be shocked about that. But that was the case here, that Isaiah was martyred by Manasseh. Well, he was also married Um, Isaiah was married and he had at least two sons. Two of the sons, by the way, are named in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 3 and Isaiah chapter 8 verse 3. Both places tell us the name of Isaiah's at least two sons. But being a prophet was, was tough, not only because if you were wrong, you'd get, you know, stoned to death. But some of the stuff that God made these guys do was kind of brutal. You think you had a tough day at the office last week. Um, Isaiah, you want to know, like, let me, let me tell you what we're going to read. In Isaiah chapter 20, the Lord says, Isaiah, I want to speak through you. Okay, Lord, here am I, send me. Um, and so he's ready to go, and the Lord says, but I want, to, I want you to sort of do an object lesson. Okay, great. Uh, what, keynote, power note, PowerPoint? What do, you, what do you want, Lord? Well, actually, you're going to be the object lesson yourself. What, what do you want me to do? Well, first of all, take off your shoes. Okay, take off your shoes. All right, take off all the rest of your clothes, too. What? Yep, all your clothes, naked. And there's Isaiah standing before God naked. He says, okay, now, I want you to walk around Israel for three whole years totally naked. That's your assignment. That's a tough day at the office right there. That's Isaiah the prophet, and he's going to do it. He's going to walk around for three years naked in Israel. Why, Brett? I'll tell you when we get to Isaiah chapter 20. <laughs> it's actually an important thing that Isaiah was doing there. Um, But all that to say, um, tough job being a prophet of the Lord in the Old Testament, whether you're Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, all these guys had it pretty tough as prophets of the Lord. I'm really glad we're not prophets in the New Testament. I'm glad we get to give a word of prophecy, but uh, we're not doing the same role as these guys. Well, Isaiah the person was a committed follower of God, was was the guy who spoke on behalf of God to the people and uh, was a powerful prophet of the Lord. That's Isaiah the person. Number two, Isaiah the passage. Well, the passage of scripture, well, Isaiah is an amazing book. Um, It's a real high point in many ways of the Old Testament. Um, I kind of tend to say that about all the books, but but when I'm in a book, I always love to uh, appreciate what that book does. the book of Isaiah is profound in so many ways. One is, is the use of the Hebrew language. Those of you that are New Testament students, you know that the, the use of the Greek language by Paul the Apostle is second to none. Secular, biblical, otherwise. No one uses the Greek language as proficiently and beautifully as Paul the Apostle. Well, Isaiah is that guy in the Old Testament. Nobody uses the Hebrew language as eloquently or as beautifully as Isaiah the prophet. Um, so it's, it's an artful academic work, um, and it's beautiful. And that's something that we non, 
Hebrew readers, we can miss that. It's the Hebrew scholars who say, yeah, Isaiah was the man. Um, Another thing that Isaiah, the book itself, the passage of scripture gives us is it's, it's, um, it's like a little miniature Bible in and of itself. 66 different chapters here in Isaiah. And I think it's interesting because a lot of scholars believe um, that each of the 66 chapters correspond with the 66 books of the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Um, And that's kind of cool. Like to me, uh, you can see a little bit of everything in the book of Isaiah. All those New Testament truths are sort of foretold and foreshadowed in the book of Isaiah. And not only is it 66 chapters that sort of mimic the 66 books of the rest of the Bible, but there's also two chunks. Remember I told you about the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the the book of Isaiah kind of has that same division. From chapters 1 through 39 of Isaiah, it has a very different personality and demeanor than chapters 40 through 66. Um, Most people divide Isaiah at least into two major chunks. Now keep that in mind because I got something to say about that here in a few minutes. The two personalities of the book of Isaiah. But the first personality is kind of this, whoa. What do you mean, Brett? Whoa, are you riding a horse? Are you a surfer? Whoa, like gnarly wave, whoa. Nope, not that. Um, the word woe in Isaiah's time was woe unto you. Bummer on you. Curses on you. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And he says this over and over and over, chapters 1 through 39. It's a brutal part of the, the book. And by the way, a lot of people look at the Old Testament that way. It's blood and guts, and doom and gloom, and you know, all this warfare and all this wrath and righteousness of God. Be careful, Christian. You know, we call it the Old Testament. And, and it's a little bit like the major and minor prophets. Um, it's the same idea. Some people think the Old Testament's the old, has been washed away, done with Old Testament. So forget that. And we've got the New Testament, new and improved. That's the wrong way to think about it. Um, there's a famous pastor who said in recent times, we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. And I believe that pastor should never be allowed to preach again for saying such a horrible thing. The New Testament and the Old Testament go hand in hand, coupled together. The Old Testament is not done away with, has been. It it, it makes the New Testament come alive. And unless you have a healthy understanding of the Old Testament, you'll never be able to appreciate the beauty of the New. Very important. Um, And so we read this, and and we're going to feel that dark, heavy feeling in chapters 1 through 39. Then, suddenly there's a change of demeanor. In chapters 40 through 66, it's comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith the Lord, you know, of hosts. It's it's this amazing blessing and comfort and peace and joy and petunias. What happened? Did Isaiah, you know, take his meds and now suddenly he's all happy and feeling good about himself? What happened to Isaiah? Well, see, I believe that God is using Isaiah to, to do what the whole Bible does. Before you can see the beauty of the New Testament, you have to see the 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 judgment, the wrath, the righteousness of the old. And the book of Isaiah does both of those things quite well. And it does change gears right in the middle of the book. We'll see that as we go through this. So you got this, this, the passage, Isaiah, the passage, which is kind of amazing how it it sort of mimics the Bible. Some people call it the miniature Bible, which is kind of cool. So you got Isaiah, the person, Isaiah, the passage, the passage of scripture. But then we think of Isaiah, the profound, 
The book that we're gonna be studying here of Isaiah is in fact profound for so many reasons. The book that we're gonna read here pictures Jesus Christ like no other book of the Old Testament. Maybe the Psalms comes close. You know, there's certain chapters in Psalms that are so messianic, you can't miss it. You see that it's about Jesus. But in the book of Isaiah, there's chapters, chapter 53, chapter 55. There's some chapters that, man, it's just all about Jesus Christ long before he ever came. And it's profound to see an Old Testament prophet talking about Jesus who would yet, who would hundreds of years later will come and fulfill these prophecies perfectly. And by the way, it wasn't just about Jesus. There's prophecies about other people as well. Do you remember studying in history Cyrus the Great? Most of you probably had to study that because, well, Cyrus, he was the kind of the conqueror of the known world before Alexander the Great did that, Cyrus the Great did it. Um, and there's kind of a story that's interesting that the book of Daniel talks about. Um, and it's, it's, if you recall the story, well, Nebuchadnezzar was long gone. His grandson uh, was ruling Belshazzar, this guy who was kind of a lightweight sort of king in place of Nebuchadnezzar, but he was sort of the king of Babylon. And, and, um, and, and the reason he was doing okay is because they had the Babylonian uh, security, the wall. Talk about a wall, building a wall. The Babylonians, they built the biggest, baddest wall you could ever imagine. When, when, when Nebuchadnezzar had left the kingdom to his grandson, first Nabonidus and then, and, then, um, and then Belshazzar, the wall around the city was up to 250 feet tall. Do you realize how tall that wall is? This wall around our sanctuary is about 40 feet wall. Uh, it's a 40 foot wall. So picture 250 foot wall all the way around. And so thick was the wall around Babylon, you could raise six chariots on the top of the wall of Babylon. This thing was a mondo wall. And then every, you know, 100 feet or so, there was a turret that would even go up from there where the guys could scope out and spy out and spill oil on people's heads and drop rocks and arrows and all that stuff. It was like considered to be the perfect wall. But not only was the wall around Babylon, but outside of the wall wasn't just a little moat, you know, the little river that they put around castles and kingdoms. The, the city of Babylon had the Euphrates River split into two and go around the city. So it was a massive river. So you had the river, then you had the wall. But not only that, they had the river, but outside on the other side of the river was a second wall. The normal size walls of most cities was like that size. So you had, first of all, a normal wall, then you had the river, Euphrates River, and then you had this massive wall. And so Babylon at that time was thought to have been impenetrable. There's no way you could take it. So what would you do, by the way, in Bible times when you wanted to take a city like that? You do what they call besiege the city. But nobody even tried it. You want to know why? Because Babylon, they boasted. There's actual writings on uh, those prisms and stuff about how ba the Babylonians could exist under siege without leaving the gates of their big city with their big walls and their river. They could, they could stay under siege for more than 20 years and be perfectly fine. Their, their uh, style of life wouldn't change at all on being under siege. That's, that's how things rolled. That's why Belshazzar, he was a lightweight. He didn't have to do anything. So he was partying down in his city one night. 
And they're getting all drunk in this drunken orgy, you know, this horrible party. Um, and he says, hey, let's bring the Jewish vessels that we stole from the temple in Jerusalem, bring those in. And so they brought in the golden vessels and they start drinking and they're partying. And there they are partying down. And it's, it's just going when suddenly this hand shows up, a big hand, and starts writing on the wall. And everybody freaked out, especially Belshazzar. So freaked out was he, well, the the Bible says the joints of his loins were loosed. (laughs) What does that mean? I don't know how to say this on a Sunday morning, but um, pass the pampers, if you know what I'm saying. (laughs) So this king messed himself and he, woo. And and they say, what does it mean? And nobody could tell him what the words, what did the words say? Well, it said, meeny, meeny, miny, mo. No, it didn't say that, sorry. It actually said, meeny, meeny, tackle you farson. What does that mean? Well, they were there scratching their heads trying to figure it out when suddenly the grandmother came in who remembered a dude that helped Nebuchadnezzar interpret dreams and stuff like that. And she said, there's this guy named Daniel, one of the Jewish captives who knows how to talk about it. Well, go get him. So they brought Daniel into this big party where the handwriting was on the wall and uh, Belteshazzar had messed himself And Daniel comes in and they say, tell us what it means. And he says, if you can tell me what this means, I'll make you second in command. I'll give you the robe and put a necklace on your neck and you'll be like right under me, second in command. Daniel says, okay, here's what this means. It means, Belshazzar, you have been weighed in the balances and you're a lightweight. You you are found wanting or lacking. You're not much of a man is basically what he said. You should have been, but you're not. And this very night, the Medes and the Persians are coming to take your kingdom from you, and you will be not the king after tonight. Well, Belshazzar in his stupidity says, that's great, thanks Daniel, and here's the robe, and here's the necklace. Do you think Daniel really cared about a robe and a necklace at that point? He's about to, Belshazzar's about to die. Well, meanwhile, while Daniel's telling them all this stuff, guess what's happening? Well, guess what's been happening? For, for a long time, the Medes and the Persians, led by Cyrus the Great and Darius the Mede, these two uh, you know, kingdoms come together to go against Babylon. And what they did was brilliant. They went up the Euphrates River a few miles up, and they diverted the river with a great feat of engineering. The waters of the Euphrates were di- di- diverted, which left the moat around Babylon dry. And... Th- some of the river water would be led in these two little tunnels. There were two gates, one wall, the first wall and the second wall. And they were like little archway gates that had brass and iron bars covering them, sort of like a a filter. And they didn't have scuba gear in those days. So it's not like you just send the SEAL team in to go in and swim under these gates with the brass bars and cut them underwater and then swim back up. That's why they thought nobody could ever take Babylon, but by, by diverting the river, They marched up to those gates, cut the bars of iron and brass, and came into the city through those two gates and took over the city that night and wiped out the Babylonians, never to be uh, world leaders ever again. The Medo-Persian Empire would be taken over at that point, just like Daniel the prophet said, by the way. But even more impressive, you're like, Brett, okay, that's great and everything, nice little story. What does that have to do with anything? Would you turn to Isaiah chapter 44? I'm, I'm wanting to show you just a sneak preview of what, what Isaiah does here uh, with his book. And this is very typical of Isaiah. In Isaiah 44, Isaiah prophesies 
and says this. It's Isaiah 44, 27. He says there in Isaiah 44, 27, he says, that saith to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up thy rivers. That saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight, and I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. And I will give thee the treasures of darkness and the hidden riches of secret places, that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by thy name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob my servant's sake, for Israel my elect, I have even called thee by thy name, and have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. Wow, Brett, that sounds like the story you just talked about. Yeah, but what's amazing about the book of Isaiah, it was written 150 years before that event happened. Before Cyrus the Great did that? Yep, you see, Isaiah, through the um, inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says there's a guy coming in future named Cyrus, and the Lord says, I declare you by your name before you were even born, Cyrus, that you're going to come and wipe out Babylon and you're going to dry up the river. You're going to loose the loins of kings. You're going to cut the bars of the gates and you're going to take the city. And there's other things about blessing Jerusalem, saying go and rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. Um, by the way, Cyrus was considered one of the greatest friends of the Jews in history. The Jews still have a love in their heart for Cyrus the Great, which is interesting. Um, for those of you that are interested in current politics, one of the things that's funny, whether you love him or hate him, doesn't really matter as much, but did you know that the Jews today in, in Jerusalem call Donald Trump Cyrus II? And the reason why is he's like one of the few guys in the world that has really supported Israel and stood by Jerusalem and the Jews, and so they call him Cyrus II, that's what they do. Um, but that's because this guy in history helped rescue the Jews and bless the Jews. Now, there wasn't really a Cyrus II. This was the Cyrus the Great that we're talking about here. And Isaiah foretold 150 years before that ever happened, Isaiah prophesied that. Now, that's just one massive prophecy that Isaiah got perfect. But he gives us tons of prophecies like this. The most that he talks about is about Jesus the Messiah. That's what makes Isaiah so great and it comes to life because we're gonna read more and more about Jesus. Did you know you could arguably say that there are at least 121 specific prophecies that Isaiah speaks of, of Jesus. Several hundred years later that would come, born in a, in a manger in Bethlehem, Isaiah spoke about those events that would come with great precision. Um, and I love this. Um, one of the guys that was a scientist uh, you know, a while back wrote an amazing book called uh, Science Speaks. Um, a guy, Dr. Peter Stoner, he was this guy who uh, talked about probabilities and, and laws and stuff like that. And I love this um, where, you know, he, he using the modern science of probability talked about what are the odds of people being able to guest, guesstimate when things are going to happen and how they're going to happen and and there's so much that's so improbable, it's kind of funny. But 
the idea of Isaiah the prophet being able to exactingly speak of Jesus? Well, he starts off his argument saying, well, what if, what if just eight prophecies concerning Jesus came to pass uh, exactly? What are the odds of some dude a couple hundred years earlier um, predicting things that Jesus did? Like, for example, let me just give you eight prophecies that Isaiah talks about. Isaiah would, number one, talk about that he'd be born of a virgin, uh, Isaiah 7, 14. He mentions in uh, Isaiah 65, 2, number two, that I, Messiah would be rejected by his own people, the Jews. In Isaiah 53, 4, the Messiah would bear the sins of the world on his shoulders. Number four, the, uh, Isaiah talks about how the Messiah's back would be whipped with a, a whip like a flagellum, Isaiah 50, verse 6. Uh, number five, Messiah would be counted with criminals hung between two thieves, Isaiah 53, 12. Um, number six, the Messiah would be killed, Isaiah 53, 8. Number seven, the Messiah would be buried in a borrowed rich man's tomb. That's very specific, Isaiah 53, 9. And number eight, the Messiah would be resurrected by God himself, Isaiah 55, 3. That's just eight. There's 121, I just gave you eight. But Dr. Stoner says, what are the odds of an Old Testament guy like Isaiah just whimsically coming up with these prophecies? What are the odds of them coming to pass, eight of them? Well, he said it's one in 10 to the 17th power. The problem is most of us, if you're like me, I'm not a math person. That's, those are just numbers that mean nothing. And I love it that Dr. Stoner brought the hay down from the loft for us non-math people. He said, what does the number one in 10 to the 17th power look like? He says, here's what it looks like. Um, the odds of, are the same of a guy predicting eight prophecies concerning Jesus. They're the same as if you took silver dollars, so many silver dollars that you fill up the state of Texas three feet deep in silver dollars. And then you take those silver dollars and you walk out with a red permanent marker and you put an X on one of those silver dollars and then you hide it somewhere in Texas. Nobody knows. Did you go to Laredo or Austin, Dallas? Where did you go? We don't know. But we fly over Texas in an airplane and we jump out anytime we feel like it and we float safely to the ground, reach down and pick up a silver dollar. What are the odds of you picking the one with the red X on it? One in 10 to the 17th power. Kind of impossible. But then he goes on, and, and I, I, I'm sorry if I'm belaboring this point, but I, I think it's, uh, the probability is really interesting um, because that's kind of impossible. But even worse, he says, what if you took 48 of the 121 prophecies that Jesus was prophesied about from Isaiah the prophet? What if you took 48 of them? Well, that's one in 10 to the 157th power. That number is beyond even our ability to think. They, Dr. Stoner tried to explain it to us. And let me, let me try to explain it to you. Um, how big is an electron? See, a silver dollar is too big for our illustration, so we have to go tiny on this one. So let's go to an electron. How big is an electron? It's smaller than you think. Uh, if you took the number, uh, for example, two and a half times 10 to the uh, 15th power, what would that number of electrons look like? If you were to get your electron microscope out and if you could move electrons around and you started to line them up in a single line, if you took a single line of electrons, two and a half times 10 to the 15th power, which is almost twice what we were just talking about silver dollars, you would have a line of electrons that would go from here to about here, one inch long. That's how many electrons can fit in just one inch, a single file. 
Um, what does that look like? Well, again, it's, it's mind-blowing. If you were with your electron microscope counting those electrons, let's say you just went and let's say you could count 230 of them per minute. One electron, two, three, four, and you did that 230 per minute. How long would it take you to count that one inch line of electrons? If you did it at 230 electrons per minute, it would take you 19 million years to count that one inch. Electrons are tiny, very tiny. But here's where it starts to get crazy. Um, By the way, if you had a one inch cube of electrons uh, perfectly smashed together, how long would it take you to count those electrons? 19 million times 19 million times 19 million years. That's, that's amazing, mind-blowing. But here's the thing. We're not even talking, what does 1 in 10 to the 157th power look like? Okay, so we take those tiny little electrons, and let's just say we make a blob. I'm not going to tell you how big the blob is, but let's say we make a blob of electrons, and we put a red X with a microscopic laser thing, and we put a red X on an electron and hide it. How big would the blob be that we hide it in? not just everything in this room, not just everything on and in this planet, you'd have to have all the mass of the, all the known universe, every sun, star, every planet, everything that's mass and material, and all of those things composed of electrons, you would have to have more than that to hide your little red X'd electron. Good luck finding that in the known universe. That's the odds of 1 in 10 to the 157th power. Does anybody's brain start to short circuit when you think about that stuff? Um, That's pretty much the definition of impossible. Pretty much like winning the Oregon lottery. Sorry, just kidding. Those of you that... uh, Well, all that to say, the point is, uh, it's it's impossible unless you have God on your side. for, For with God, what? All things are possible. Isaiah the prophet doesn't just nail down 48. He doesn't just nail down eight. He nails down 121 specific prophecies about Jesus hundreds of years before he ever came. And every single one of those, those requirements were met perfectly by Isaiah the prophet. I love that. And that's what we're going to see in the book of Isaiah. Now, here's the thing about this. Some of you um, might say, well, Brad, I don't know about all that. Um, but, but here's the thing that kind of brings us to not only, number one, Isaiah the perfect person, not only number two, Isaiah the passage, and number three, Isaiah the profound, but it brings us to number four, Isaiah the problem. What's the problem? Well, that's just it. The skeptics, the cynics, the atheists, they really have a problem with the book of Isaiah and Daniel and others as well. But Isaiah is one of their great, great problems. And they... Some hate the book of Isaiah. And the reason why is because of what I just explained. The idea of some guy predicting with total precision and perfection the prophecies concerning Jesus or even concerning Cyrus the Great or all the other prophecies given in the book of Isaiah, the skeptic, the cynic says, impossible. It's amazing to me, by the way, that that same skeptic and cynic often believes in evolution which the probabilities of evolution of, you know, going from goo to you, ha, the probability of that happening is even more profoundly uh, um, impossible. 
So you almost have to exchange one impossibility for the other, except the one impossibility has no cause or no uh, origin, whereas we say at least God preexisted and did all this stuff. Um, but all, all that to say, they hate the book of Isaiah because they, they say it's impossible. So here's what they've done throughout the ages. The skeptic, the cynic, the hater of the Bible. They say, Isaiah, this was the big one. Isaiah is a forgery. There's no way a guy could have written that during the time of Isaiah, during the reign of Jotham and, and Ahaz and Uzziah. There's no way that a prophet could have written those things with such exact precision before those events happened. So it's a forgery. And from really ancient history, um, they've been talking about that, how Isaiah's a forgery. Now, here's what's great about this, by the way. Porphyry was one of these ancient critics, and he said, you know, the book of Isaiah was actually written in A.D. 50 by a forgerer who claimed to be Isaiah. And this is the narrative that went on for years. And by the way, some kooky professors in colleges and universities still use this argument. And it's so pathetic that they would even use this. I mean, there's better other arguments you could use if you wanted, but they just haven't done their homework. They're saying, yeah, Isaiah's a forgery. And the reason why is because Isaiah had to exist after AD 50 because he knew all the end of the story. How did he know it? It was a forgery. That's what they say. The reason we know that that's impossible is a little thing called the Septuagint. Does anybody know what the Septuagint is? It's, it's a translation of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, a translation into Greek. And it was first translated into the Greek language in 285 BC, the Septuagint. And lo and behold, that's not a debatable thing. Everybody knows, even the, the most uh, ardent of atheists has to admit the Septuagint's been around for a long time. Uh, that's not a debatable, arguable thing. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, um, that's, that's what Jesus would have been quoting when he was quoting the scriptures. In Jesus' day, he would have been quoting from that Septuagint Bible, if you would. But all that to say, the Septuagint was written in 285 B.C., So we know that Isaiah at least dates back to 285 B.C., not 50 A.D., like Porphyry and others have said. So it's an impossible thing for uh, um, people to make that claim that it was a forgery. Um, now, there, there's some people that say, well, Brett, I believe that, uh, you know, um, all those things were written after everything happened, or maybe those things never happened. Maybe they wrote about the story of Jesus. That's one of the arguments now. The story of Jesus never really happened. They just took Isaiah's prophecy and then wrote a story based on that. But Jesus and his existence... Jesus dying on the cross and raising up from the grave, I would say is one of the most easily defended things in all of history. The whole world was turned upside down when Jesus came. We changed our whole dating system. Uh, Jesus changed the world when he came. The the disciples were told that they were turning the world upside down and that's exactly what happened. Um, If you're interested, I've defended on the, the whole story of Jesus. It's the most historically defendable thing that ever happened on the earth. More eyewitness accounts than any other historical story in the universe is the story of Jesus. It's an amazing thing, easily defended. Meanwhile, all these college professors are getting away with murder with these 18-year-old kids coming from their, their, their public schools and hearing these profs say, oh, Isaiah's a forgery, like my prophet, uh, prophet Southern Oregon University used to say, uh, Isaiah's just a forgery. When I told him of the Septuagint problem, he said, well, actually it's not a forgery, but I believe there were actually two Isaiahs. That's what what he started to argue. 
Um, there's two Isaiahs, and, and by the way, they call that the Deutero Isaiah. Sounds very academic to an 18-year-old. Wow, the Deutero Isaiah? What's the Deutero Isaiah? Well, then they even talk about a Trito Isaiah. There's three Isaiahs. Wow, Isaiahs are popping out like whack-a-mole. Isaiah, Isaiah. Um, now wait, what about this? Well, here's the thing about the Deutero Isaiah. I love it when people bring that up. They say, well, there was actually two Isaiahs. One wrote the first part, the other wrote the second part. And that way, they, they do this fancy little finagle thing to sort of make it work out where the second Isaiah wrote it much later than the first Isaiah. So it wasn't a forgery, but it was a different Isaiah altogether. And what I love about that one is um, I, I, I have them turn, you know, right to the Gospel of John, um, where, let me just read it to you because this is kind of great. Um, I, I actually enjoy this, uh, talking to people about this, because... In John's gospel, he writes, now, some people believe the Bible's inspired, others don't. I believe that every word of the Bible is inspired by God. So in that, John the apostle says in John chapter uh, 12, verse 37, but though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him, that the saying, listen, of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? He's quoting from Isaiah 53, 1 the last part of the book of Isaiah. And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe because that Isaiah said again. Which Isaiah? That one, the same one. John says, the same Isaiah said, he hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their heart and be converted as I should heal them. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spoke of him. He's quoting there from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, and Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10. So John quotes from both of the controversial sections of Isaiah, and John says, and by the way, it was the same Isaiah who said that. So what you can do, it's kind of fun, is you you talk to your professor, professor, you say there's a Deutero-Isaiah, two Isaiahs, one from the old times, one from newer times, but Mr. Professor, do you understand the Bible better than John the Apostle? Because John the Apostle said there's one Isaiah. The same Isaiah said the same things. And, and, and maybe even more importantly, who taught John about this stuff? A guy named Jesus. You want to know something about Jesus? Turn to Luke chapter 4 real quick. Jesus talks about the book of Isaiah in Luke. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke chapter 4. I want you to see this one because this is kind of fun. Jesus' first sermon that he preached was from the book of Isaiah. Um, I love this. Uh, Jesus was doing something that was customary right now. During the Sabbath day, a rabbi would come in and they'd unfloral the, the, the scroll of the scriptures. And then the, the rabbi would read a, a section. And he was required to read a whole section, um, not to leave any part of it out. So Jesus gets up there in Nazareth at the synagogue. I've been there before. I've been to this very synagogue from the first century in Nazareth where Jesus preached the sermon. But there in Isaiah, uh, pardon me, uh, Luke chapter 4, it says in verse 16, And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. Um, By the way, that different spelling in some of your Bibles, don't be freaked out by that. Um, It's the Greek New Testament spelling of the same word. It's like, you know, um, when you start going with different translations and centuries of difference, 
Um, it's like, you know, what we might say is, um, you know, um, uh, James or Jim. Or maybe, uh, um, like, like, I'm trying to think of an example of when a language barrier, you know, like I remember when James and I went to Africa, the, the, the French-speaking population, we said his name is James. And they're like, what? James? And one guy goes, Jacques. Oh, yeah. Oh, we know Jacques. So Jacques is James. It's just different language. So don't be freaked out. When it says Isaiah here in the Greek New Testament, it's Isaiah from the old Hebrew. Are you okay with that? That's important. You'll see that a bunch. Uh, names after hundreds of years in different languages. So he, he reads from the book of Isaiah, middle of verse 17. And when he opened the book, he found the place where it was written. And here's what Jesus read. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance um, to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, this is interesting. He finished there, but did you know if you read Isaiah, the passage this comes from, did you know that he didn't finish a sentence to preach the acceptable year of our Lord? And there's a whole other part of a sentence that he left out. He closes the book half sentence and sits down. Look at verse 20. He closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all of them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Can you imagine that? Why were their eyes fastened on him? Because he did something that was totally taboo. You don't just read half a scripture. And that's exactly what he did. He read half a scripture and then closed the book and said, and sat down and they're all looking at him. And Jesus is sitting there. And then he says, today, all of these words that I just read are fulfilled. Fulfilled? That God's going to send one to set the captive free, to heal, heal the blind and to, to uh, open wide the prison doors, all this stuff to preach the gospel? He, he was claiming to be the Messiah in that sermon. And that's why everybody was there listening to what he said and was kind of freaked out. Well, why didn't he keep going with the other part of the sentence? Because if you read in Isaiah, the rest of it, it's talking about what he's gonna do in the millennial kingdom in the future that he still has yet to do. He stopped and when it only was relating to the first coming of Christ, not the second coming of Christ. What a powerful, powerful thing. See, I love this because Jesus spoke his first sermon as a fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah. And in so doing, Jesus signs his name of approval to Isaiah, the book. So if the professor says the book of Isaiah is a forgery or the book of Isaiah is two Isaiahs or a trito Isaiah and a deutero Isaiah, you've got a problem. You are claiming to know more about the Bible than Jesus knew. And, and really, that's the point. Uh, if, a, if a professor is saying, yes, I know more about the Bible than Jesus, then most other people go, okay, well, we, we, at least we know where you stand. You think you're smarter than Jesus. Okay, got it. You see, that's the point, is the book of Isaiah is this powerful book that Jesus signs his name to. And the book is all about him. Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me. That's Jesus. Jesus is the scarlet thread that is woven throughout the whole Bible. And don't ever forget, the Old Testament makes the New Testament come alive. And that's what happened with Jesus. He was referring to himself from the book of Isaiah on his first sermon. It's all about Jesus. 
And what did Jesus come to do? Exactly what Isaiah. See, Isaiah's gonna tell us the whole gospel story before the gospel even unfolds. He's gonna say, though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. He's gonna say, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But then he's gonna talk about how he's gonna lay down his life like a sheep led off to the slaughter. That's Jesus. Isaiah talked about that. That he'd be wounded for our transgressions. He'd be beaten beyond recognition. These are all things that Isaiah the prophet told that Jesus would do for you and for me. And just like those professors in colleges that are claiming that the book of Isaiah is a forgery and or deutero Isaiah or treat to Isaiah, the problem really gets down to what do you think of Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus or don't you? Do you believe he is the Messiah? Do you believe Isaiah knew what he was talking about or don't you? That's the question you and I have to grapple with. And I hope that one of the results of going through this book as we introduce it today is that you'll take a hard look at Jesus Christ. For the believer, the book of Isaiah is only a thing that makes us rejoice and it confirms our faith and it makes us glad. But if you're not yet a believer, it's gonna challenge you to say, do I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he came to die for the sins my sins, that he rose from the grave, just like Isaiah predicted? Do I believe this? And I think you'll find the book of Isaiah to be a powerful defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May the Lord give his church and people that are not saved ears to hear what the Spirit would say through this powerful book. Amen? Amen. Amen. Lord, we are so thankful for the book of Isaiah Um, The gospel message, Lord, is so powerful, so important. Lord, apart from you, no one can be saved. Because of the work of the gospel, Lord, we're just blessed that we get to be a part of that and be part of your kingdom, to be saved by grace through faith, not of our works. Lord, that you did all the work. And now I pray, Lord, this, this, this Sunday, that you would cause each person in this room to know where they stand with their relationship with you. Lord, our sin separates us from you. But for my brothers and sisters in this room, may they know that their sins are forgiven. I pray for the person who's yet to accept or believe that they would soften their heart and they would confess you as their savior. For whatever reason, maybe you've not accepted Christ or you're not a Christian. Man, I'd love to pray with you. I'd like to give you an opportunity to confess your faith. What makes you a Christian? You can't do anything to add to what Jesus already did. He died on the cross for your sins. If you thought hopefully your good outweighs your bad, that that would save you, that's a misnomer. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that we've all sinned. There's no one righteous. But if you want to, you can be forgiven of your sins because of what Jesus did. God became a man, lived among us, died on a cross brutally for us, in place of us, satisfying the the debt you owe because of sin, and me too. So those of us who say, Lord, we accept that and we believe that, that you died, that you rose again and we repent of our sins. doesn't mean we're perfect, but it means we're perfectly forgiven. We accept that. That's what saves you. You're saved by grace through faith. The Bible says if you confess that with your mouth and believe it in your heart, Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, you'll be saved. Let's pray together. Dear Father in heaven, I believe in your son, Jesus Christ that he died on the cross for my sins and that he rose up from the grave and that I'm forgiven. Help me to walk with you. Thank you for saving me. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. 
we encourage you to take advantage of our media ministry. You can do that by going online to our website, athecreek.com. There we have all of Pastor Brett's Bible studies available as a free download. 